0: We're back with the Verbatim Word podcast where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. This is Justin Gary. We live in a modern society that is king of the waiver form. The paper you sign or the box that you check saying that you understand you are entering into an activity that has risks involved and that you agree that you will not hold another party responsible if anything happens. These waiver forms are everywhere. If you sign up for sports or recreational activities or apartment leases and condo agreements, or university and school activities, or even a flu shot or vaccine. If you participate in life much, you've probably signed a waiver. And it may have had the weighty line included, which says, I acknowledge that the nature of this activity may expose me to hazards and risks that may result in my illness, personal injury, loss of personal property, or even death. Something you weren't really thinking about when you agreed to sign your kid up for drama camp or t-ball, or you went with your buddies to a self-defense class or the spa. And it made you think for a second, is what I'm about to do really worth it? Life can be risky, but some risks are worth taking. I saw a quote that said, take risks. If you win, you'll be happy. If you lose, you'll be wise. Even in investing financially, the greater the risk, the greater the reward, or so they say. But I'm not liable for the accuracy of that statement in current financial markets. Today, Paul writes about two of his partners in ministry, and the risks they had taken to serve the Lord. Because for Paul and his team, the cause of the gospel was worth it. But it wasn't without certain risks. Last time we looked at working out our salvation with fear and trembling, receiving the free gift of the gospel and all that Jesus has accomplished, but applying it full and engaging in the process of letting Christ work in us, to make us more like himself. We saw God's commitment to work in us, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, and that as we work out the things of the Lord, our words and actions and witness to the world will bring glory to God. On this episode, we see the impact that two of Paul's teammates had on the cause of the kingdom, taking personal risks and securing certain reward, at least eternal rewards. Let's take a look at Timothy and Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. As Paul writes this, he's still under house arrest in Rome, but he's not in solitary confinement. If you remember, he was able to stay in his own rented house in Rome, and he could receive all those who came to him, turning it into a home ministry or home church, where he kept preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And in the constant traffic that I imagine Paul entertained were two partners in particular that he writes to the Philippian church about, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He writes about Timothy first. We read in Philippians 2, verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. First, Paul reminds them that he is trusting in the Lord. Paul had very little control in this situation. As much as he wanted to plan and strategize and do great things for the gospel, he acknowledged that it was out of his control in the end, saying, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. He took to heart the words that James wrote in James 4. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. When we decide to follow Christ, there is risk involved that our times and plans are no longer fully in our hands. We might think we know what is best, but the Lord knows better. And as Christians, we surrender our day planners, our calendars, our five and 10 year plans to Him, knowing that He has the best plans, and we yield to those. So when schedules and goals get sidelined or delayed or derailed, we can trust the Lord that maybe there's something we missed in laying out our well-intentioned plans and that the Lord has something more important to accomplish. Paul said there, But I trust in the Lord Jesus. How freeing this can be. From a worldly perspective, this can drive us crazy, but from a kingdom perspective, it can really set us free. I'm sure that Abraham and Sarah never anticipated the delays related to having a child, or that Noah thought that the building project would take that long, or that Moses imagined the trip would take 40 years of detours, Or that David understood that it would take so long for Saul to give up the throne that was rightfully his. But God accomplished his will in each of those schedules. And let that be an encouragement to us, too, in this on demand world. God is not in a rush, and God may edit our plans. But we can say, like Paul does, but I trust in the Lord Jesus. When we trust, the word can also be translated from the Greek word hope or to expect. It's that abiding sense that God will do something. It's just a question of when or how. In Paul's case, he trusted in the Lord Jesus. He trusted in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to the Philippians shortly that he also may be encouraged when he knew their state. His intention was to send Timothy back to Philippi soon so that then Timothy could find out how they were doing and bring back word to Paul. Communication was slow in those days, the Pony Express at best, with letters written then taken by the hand of a courier or messenger. No emails, texts, instant messenger, or even social media postings to keep the world up to date on the latest news. Just regular old snail mail in hibernation mode. And Timothy was willing to do it. Imagine the request, hey Tim, can you do me a favor? Sure, Paul, what is it? Uh, Can you run an errand for me? Name it probably expecting a request to run down to the corner market in Rome to pick up a carton of milk. Uh, can you go to Philippi to find out how they're doing? I really miss them. This was a huge request. The journey was no picnic. I just did a Google Maps search, and from Rome to Philippi, or the modern Greek city of Kavala, it's 1,214 miles, or 402 hours by foot, since Google Maps has a pedestrian option. That's all by land, 402 hours. If he did part of it by boat or ferry in the modern world, which is an option, Google Maps has it at 760 miles or about 215 hours. Add to that the other implications and inconveniences. Thieves on the road, storms and shipwrecks without modern navigation and weather devices. No ease of booking reservations ahead on the ferry or finding good rates on hotels.com. Imagine some of the layovers that he had. No grocery stores or drive throughs along the interstate on the way. This is one big request to make out of Timothy. And yet, Timothy is prepared to go if it will serve Paul and if it will serve Christ. This guy was awesome. Sure, Paul, I'll do it. A true servant. What a blessing to have people around us who would drop anything and everything to do almost anything for us. It's great to have those kind of people around. It reminds me of a story in 1 Chronicles, when David is holed up in the cave of Adullam. You all know how restless we can get when we're locked down for too long? Well, David knew that as well. And in 1 Chronicles 11, beginning in verse 16, we read, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate just nonchalantly, he said, man, I wish I had some of that water from home. I just miss the comfort of being home. And I wish we could go there. And out of the 30 main guys who were with him, three of them overheard this and took it to heart. And so it goes on in first Chronicles 11. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. What a risk there in 1 Chronicles 11, crossing over enemy lines to grab something to drink. It's like if modern soldiers crossed into enemy territory to bring into a heavenly guard, breaking into a heavily guarded compound, to grab a Mountain Dew from the vending machine because their captain is thirsty. I mean, who does that? And David can't drink it. He pours it out as an offering to the Lord, for at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Those are the kind of people you want around you in battle. Those who are willing to lay it all down and risk it all to serve. Now, serving the Lord, it can be risky. God doesn't always call us to do things that are only safe, at least safe in our eyes. Now, that doesn't mean that he's always going to send us on the next plane out of here to the next Ebola outbreak to share Jesus with people, or to pack up our kids to set up camp in some hostile regime to hold a tent revival at the risk of execution. The risk might be stepping out of your comfort zone to serve in a new way, or putting yourself out there in something you feel inadequate to do in the in his service in the body of Christ, or to speak up in a way that brings opposition or criticism, or sticking it out when others have moved on or giving up another night of your week when you're already so busy, or increasing your giving in already tough times. As Paul says, we can trust the Lord. And when God comes through, it's, it's worth the risk. Esther. Esther took a risk. She was the new queen of Persia in the Old Testament, a Jewish woman married to the king. And when the decree went out to kill the Jews, she put herself at risk. As we see in Esther 4, Mordecai sent her this message. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. She was freed. Esther was spared, and so were the people of God. What are we willing to risk for the work of the Lord? Timothy was willing, and Paul didn't take it for granted. Listen to how he describes Timothy in verses 20-24. through For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, Timothy served with me in the gospel. Therefore I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. Paul and Timothy shared the same heart and the same mind. He knew that if he sent Timothy, that they would get the same pastoral care that they would if Paul himself went. We all know how this goes. When the B team is on, we usually don't expect as much. When the pastor's gone, the sermon may not be as good as we're used to, or when the substitute is at the head of the class, the lessons are usually a bit more mediocre. When the understudy is on the stage, the performance usually lacks a bit of something. When the first string is benched, the game usually loses its momentum. This wasn't the case for Paul when he planned to send Timothy. Timothy took the opportunity seriously and was willing to put everything into it, treating this ministry opportunity as if Paul himself were going to do it. When we cover for others, a lot of times we do the bare minimum, through just enough to say, yeah, we did our part, but it's not really our job after all. This was not Timothy's heart at all. If he was going to do this, he would sincerely care for these people. The word sincerely is used only once in the whole New Testament, and it's used right here, and that's how rare this was. It means naturally, or genuinely, or faithfully. Paul trusted that Timothy would genuinely care for them. They were not going to be getting a substitute missionary who had nothing better to do with their time. They would get the highest care. And why? Because Timothy's heart was right. As Paul says, For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. While others may have been concerned with, what's in it for me? Or, Paul, how much will you pay me and will it be worth my time? Timothy knew he would be doing it for Jesus, not Paul. He took to heart what Paul had encouraged the Colossians with in saying, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. While Paul may have requested this trip to Philippi, Timothy took it as a field assignment from Jesus himself. And Timothy would do anything to serve Jesus. As it says there in Colossians, he would do it heartily, with a whole heart, not just half a heart or half something else, as was the case in our household growing up, but wholeheartedly, with passion, motivation, commitment, effort, follow through. I tell you, this is more and more lacking in the world, would you agree? In all spheres, in all areas, service and customer service seem to be hard to come by. Colossians also reminds us that there is reward when we serve Jesus, knowing that God will bless us, either now or in eternity or both, for our service. And the indication is that those rewards will not come just if we did something, but how we did it. How do we measure up to this statement? For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Even in Paul's own circles, he found this hard to come by. Servants of Jesus, partners in the gospel. There was still a lot of self in the mix, a what's-in-it-for-me attitude. And we saw that last time, that God is conforming us into his image, that we need to work out our salvation, and it may not all be dealt with at once. And Paul was gracious and not judgmental, knowing that each one is on their own timeline of sanctification. But when it came to this assignment, which was so important to Paul, He would call upon one who was faithful and had proven himself. That's why Timothy was going. Because he had been faithful in the least and would be faithful in much. Paul was confident of that. On this important mission, Paul felt confident sending Timothy because Timothy had been tested and proven. Verse 22. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Character is tested and refined. Most people can hold it together in controlled situations pretty well. But when things get hard or tough, the true colors come out. That's why when Paul wrote to Timothy about appointing church leaders, he said that for bishops, or many would say pastors or elders, make sure they're not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Make sure they have some experience, he said, that they've gone through some hard things and proven themselves. And a similar thing to deacons, he writes to Timothy, But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Let them go through testing before you call on them to be consistently entrusted with responsibility with kingdom implications. Timothy had been tested. He had served alongside Paul. Paul had seen him in all seasons, and they had been through a lot together. In fact, Timothy had joined Paul's team just prior to the first visit to Philippi. Paul had just separated from Barnabas, his longtime ministry partner and friend. And Paul was in need of a new partner in the gospel and a teammate. We see in Acts 16 verses 1 through 4. Then Paul came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. You might say it was a case of being in the right place at the right time, but there was more to it than that. There in Derby and Lystra, Timothy's hometown, Paul had been there previously. In fact, that is where, when you read in the book of Acts, the crowd from Antioch and Iconium had come after Paul and stoned him and dragged him out of the city, thinking Paul was dead. And the disciples gathered around him, and he went into the city, then went on to the next town to keep preaching again. From the first exposure to the gospel, Timothy knew that persecution for the gospel was real, and that it even meant potential opposition and injury and death, perhaps. I wonder if Paul had Timothy sign a waiver form when he first signed up to join the team. And when Timothy joined the team in Acts 16, he was all in. He even got circumcised, which is something that usually grown men did not endure. But Timothy was willing for the sake of the gospel. And after that, in all they experienced, Timothy was tested, his character was proven. He was even there in Philippi when Paul and Silas were thrown in prison and beaten, watched as Paul escaped at night to flee the mob in Thessalonica, with him during the riot in Ephesus. In fact, Timothy was often assigned to the cleanup team, that when the crowds of the riots or the uprisings were stirred when Paul preached, and he had to skip town quickly or face worse things, Timothy often stayed behind to help get the newborn church in order, and to raise up local leaders who could shepherd the flock from there on out. It was no easy job for Timothy. He never knew what was coming. But you know what he did know? He knew that God was faithful. He had a front row seat to seeing God do some pretty amazing things. People saved, lives transformed, communities changed. God delivered from opposition. God worked in spite of persecution. He saw God protect, even in violence and attempts to thwart the work of God. I mean... Timothy got to see God work up close and personal. And now Paul was confident in Timothy and able to send Timothy forward on his own. This was discipleship at its finest. Timothy watching Paul, then serving with Paul, now going on for Paul. It's a process that we should all be engaged in. Raising up the next generation of gospel workers, teaching our kids or young leaders or new believers about ministry and in ministry, then entrusting them with ministry. And while Paul was unsure about his own future, he had peace and joy in knowing that the work would continue, as he wrote in verses 23 and 24. Therefore I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. While Paul had hoped that the Lord might release him soon to preach again, there was hope and trust that the gospel would move forward, because those like Timothy were willing, ready, and able to continue in the work. While Paul is planning to send Timothy to Philippi shortly, he has an immediate plan of sending someone back that they were all too familiar with. A believer from Philippi named Epaphroditus was currently with Paul. He had come to Rome prior to this, bringing a gift of financial support to help take care of Paul, which we'll read about a little bit more towards the end of this book. They were so concerned about Paul in prison that they had started a GoFundMe account, raised some money, and then sent it with Epaphroditus the gift made it successfully though there were some challenges for epaphroditus along the way and now paul is writing this letter and will send it back to philippi by the hands of epaphroditus as he goes back home we read in verses 25 through 28 yet i considered it necessary to send to you epaphroditus my brother fellow worker and fellow soldier but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick, almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. This guy Epaphroditus, he'll be Paul's messenger now that he's ministered to Paul by bringing this financial gift of support to Paul from Philippi. His name means belonging to Aphrodite. She was the pagan goddess of of love, of fertility and pleasure, who was worshipped through temple prostitution in Corinth. This guy, before knowing Jesus, belonged to Aphrodite. But now he served Jesus and his people. What a testimony. In fact, he has a whole new identity in Christ. Paul calling him here in verse 25, My brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. They were brothers, brothers born of the same heavenly father, adopted into the family of God. Even the mighty apostle Paul saw himself as equals with this guy as brothers. Not one more high in God's eyes, each one blessed to be called God's son. Epaphroditus was a fellow worker, each with a different gift, one in this and the other in that, but just as important in the advancement of the kingdom, both laboring faithfully in whatever ministry God had given them, one an apostle, one a messenger boy. Epaphroditus was a fellow soldier, taking risks on the front lines, fighting for the advancement of the kingdom, one soul at a time, one town at a time, and constantly standing against the kingdom of darkness in battle for truth and clothed in the full armor of God. This guy has worked out his salvation in all areas, no longer belonging to Aphrodite, but a brother in Christ, a fellow worker in Jesus' kingdom, and a fellow soldier in the Lord's army. Now, when Philippi had taken up their collection, they couldn't just Venmo the money or send it via PayPal. Someone had to take it to Paul, and Epaphroditus volunteered to go. It was a risk to do so. Take time off work, leave the family, travel the way all that way with that valuable offering. And not sure if he forgot his face mask or forwent the vaccine, but he got sick at some point. I mean, really sick. Paul says that he was sick unto death. The guy almost died. It was real touch and go for a while. And the whole church in Philippi heard about it and was worried. And then he was distressed because he knew that they were worried. Now, this is tough to wrestle with. Here the guy steps out in faith to serve the Lord. Going on this journey and he gets sick and almost dies. But wasn't he serving the Lord? Couldn't the Lord have shielded him from whatever it was that he picked up? I had a friend who served in the mission field for many years. Multiple countries, multiple churches, such a faithful servant of the Lord. She would go anywhere and serve anyone. She could always be counted on. And she used to joke about all the places that she lived in, not exactly healthy. Downwind from Chernobyl in one country. Other countries where EPA standards were not a thing. Old communist apartment buildings that probably had lead paint or old pipes. I mean, not developing nations with no running water or anything like that, but certainly places where health and safety were probably overlooked by former regimes. So it wasn't too much of a surprise when she was diagnosed with cancer. And though she fought it, the cancer won, and she went to be with Jesus, which was her greatest desire all along. But Lord, she was serving you. Was she not protected? Or you think about Jim Elliott and the end of the spear missionaries and others who have been doing the work of God and gone through hardship or illness or mistreatment or death. Lord, isn't there some divine bubble you could wrap them in to protect them? Some divine bubble wrap? Jesus hinted that God would watch over those who were out sharing the gospel. In Mark 16, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they'll cast out demons. They'll speak with new tongues. They'll take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Even Paul on his way to Rome, shipwrecked on Malta, bitten by a venomous serpent and the whole island watches and waits for him to die. And he shakes it off and he doesn't keel over. God somehow protecting him. Or the Old Testament promise in Isaiah 54 that says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. So how did Epaphroditus end up sick? How do servants of the Lord doing God's work still go through hard things? The answer? I don't know. While God could shield his own in all situations, he doesn't. I know, though, that God is good, always, and God will demonstrate his goodness through those things, even if that is a long time coming. And the Lord, his name, it will be glorified in the end. Paul was relieved that Epaphroditus' fever broke, that he had recovered, and was now strong enough to travel again. Apparently, his COVID test came back negative, and Paul recounts the roller coaster that they went through. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul says if he had died, I don't know what I would have done. Knowing he had taken the journey to Rome to bring the gift to Paul, his journey was a service to Paul. If only he had never left Philippi, he would still be healthy and alive, Paul must have thought. That's the thoughts Paul was wrestling with, wondering if he would die or not. And if he had died, that would have brought sorrow upon sorrow. Well, wait a minute, Paul. Just in the last chapter, you said to die is gain. Where's the hopeful celebratory attitude that the best is yet to come? That death is a precious thing for the saints. Are you changing your song now just one chapter later? While Paul embraced death, And long to be with Jesus. Death is never light and still rocks us every time. And while we find hope in death, we still sorrow, though not as those who have no hope. It's okay to sorrow over death. Even Jesus wept, knowing that he was going to revive Lazarus in just a few minutes' time. Death is a reminder of the curse, something that was not a part of the original human experience. Until sin entered the garden, and and the day that they ate of it, death was introduced and we sorrow, because as far as this life, death is so permanent. But we sorrow, sorrow upon sorrow. Dear friends are dealing with the loss of their daughter, so much sorrow, and yet they're believers, they know the Lord, they know where she's gone. Aaron's stepbrother passed away in the last few weeks, and watching the online memorial service, such sorrow, though such hope that he's with the Lord. A pastor friend who lost his wife over two years ago, still dealing with the sorrow every day of losing his best friend and partner in life and ministry. In the situation with Epaphroditus, God was merciful and he did not die. But even for those who pass on, the next words of Paul are true perspective. Verse 28, Therefore I send him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Perhaps the Philippians were still waiting for news, thinking that Epaphroditus might have died. And imagine the joy when he comes through the door with this letter from Paul, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, he says. Oh, the joy of seeing those we love again, the faithful in Christ, when we can rejoice in God's faithfulness to us, to all of us, to protect us, or sustain us, or deliver us, or save us, or even take us home. Whatever risks we face in this life, whether they just be the natural risks of living and existing in this fallen world, or the risks that come with serving the Lord and stepping out in faith, the biggest risk has been mitigated for those who believe in the gospel. The risk of death has been put away, and the liability of sin has been waived. We are not responsible because Jesus took the liability. His life, his death, his burial and resurrection, better than any waiver form we could ever sign on this earth. Paul finishes the chapter with instructions when they finally greet Epaphroditus again as he delivers the letter. In verses 29 and 30, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Honoring him, he says, because not everyone is willing to serve Christ this way. We each have our call in life, and some are called to sacrifice more than others, it seems. We are all called to be faithful in what God has called us to. Honor those who go the extra mile. The missionaries who return from overseas. The pastors who serve day in and out the needs of the body. The quiet servants who go beyond the call, going without any recognition. For the work of Christ, he came close to death not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. They had served with their gift, a literal gift of provision for Paul, the Philippian church. But they didn't have all the gifts. There were other gifts in the body of Christ, and they did not possess them all. Each of us is called to be faithful in what God gives us to do. And true service involves sacrifice, giving up something personally for the benefit of others. For Epaphroditus, for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life. He was all in, not even regarding his life anymore. Echoing as Paul said in Galatians two twenty, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was willing to give up everything for the cause of Christ. He had no life left to live apart from Jesus. And this is the passion that Jesus is seeking from those who follow him. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple, asking us to consider our devotion to him and his calling on us as the primary identifier in our lives. And we read about the faithful in Christ in Revelation, those who overcome the accuser. It says this, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death, willing to be those true witnesses, those true martyrs, who have no life to cling to because they already have given it to Jesus. And most of us are not there yet, if we're honest. We pale in comparison to Timothy. We don't hold up a candle to Epaphroditus. There is still so much of us and so much room for Jesus in our lives. It's a risky thing to release our lives fully to Jesus. Who knows what he will have in store? But we are safer facing any risk with him than seeking the safety of self-preservation. There's no security in that. And so, Father, we pray for a greater measure of trust that we might release to you all that we cling to so tightly and instead cling to you as a good and perfect father and as a powerful and mighty king, as a loving and forgiving savior and as a wise and understanding counselor. May our eyes be washed to see the rewards as greater than any risk, with a greater measure of faith to do what you call us to do and a greater portion of the Holy Spirit to live as witnesses, to live as martyrs, for the kingdom of God. We thank you in advance for all you have planned for our lives and we worship you for all that you will fulfill in your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.